Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science and spirituality. In today's episode on ethics, we'll be exploring the topics of desire, suffering, love and the fascist mind. I hope you enjoy the episode. Imagine my face. Imagine its shapes, its lines, its symmetries and blemishes, its creases and crevices. The skin stretched across cheekbones, a bulbous nose, thin lips and thick stubble. You see all of the details of its surface. Now look into my eyes. Look for me, the me that is speaking. What do you see? If the eyes are the windows to the soul, it appears to be one-way glass, because from the outside we see nothing. You can know nothing of me, or I of you, beyond our facades. You cannot leap inside me to think my thoughts, feel my feelings, or know my knowledge. How then are we to know what each other needs? And if I cannot know what you or anyone else needs, how can I know what it is to be a good person? This is the question of ethics. What is right and wrong, or what is good and bad, or even good and evil? In some approaches to ethics in the history of philosophy, these categories such as the good have been taken as universals, the idea that in some way there is a notion of the good which applies to all humans. This kind of transcendent ethics is somehow out there in the universe itself, beyond the human, and it is the philosopher's role to rationally determine what that good is. In contrast to this is what we might call an immanent ethics, where there is no universal good, but in which we produce our ethical systems within ourselves. This would include the position taken by Spinoza, for whom ethics is centred around the body, with the good being that which supports the conatus, the striving to survive, of an organism. Right and wrong is related to what increases a body's power to act, or else harms it, decreasing power to act. Rather than ethics as moral duty, as is central to Kant, ethics is here more about determining the healthy and unhealthy. This latter immanent ethics seems closer to the account I have been presenting. I have stressed that meaning arises from complex bodies, like humans, animals, plants, in their relation to their environment. But one might worry here that this would lead to a kind of moral relativism. Different cultures have different experiences and therefore different ethics, and therefore nothing which can bind us together as a global ethical or political movement. It could lead to individualism and disempowerment. However, I have also stressed that this epistemic relativism is compatible with ontological realism. In other words, our bodies and perspectives are limited and unique, but they arise from a shared continuum of reality. And within that reality, bodies are not just chaotically formulated, but tend to create patterns and tendencies. We can always find difference on the local scale, in the unique creation of each moment in each body, but standing back we can see relative patternings between bodies over populations and over long periods of time. 
the simple whole can emerge from complex parts. Or to say the same thing, local difference and global similarity coexist. Despite our differences, human beings do share some broad biological and sociopoietic outlines, as Sylvia Winter put it. The need for food, water, air, shelter on the one hand, and also collective recognition, care and narrative coherence on the other. The concern for these biological and social needs are expressed in broadly shared bodily responses, a felt empowerment or disempowerment of varying intensity, a felt drive towards what one desires, a felt aversion to perceived threats and so on. The actual content of what in the world one desires or sees as a threat, and how one conceptualises their feelings, is relative, and in that creates its own unique experience. The actual content of how one cares, how one is recognised, and how one finds narrative coherence is also relative, but the need for these are as close to universals as we could hope to find. So although the particulars of an ethical system will always be context and culture specific, there are underneath certain broad forces and tendencies which provide the outline of a universality. This effective universality is not about creating a fixed ethical system for all of humanity over all of history, but of uncovering some abstract forces which help to shape human systems. It's worth briefly noting something which I haven't had a chance to say in previous episodes, but which has run through every mention of tendencies, similarities, synchronizations, and so on. That is, I take the notion of absolute universals as antithetical to the metaphysics I have set out. An absolute universal is an impossibility. There are at best very, very, very strong tendencies, but everything is ultimately contingent. Even what are called the laws of physics, the most stable tendencies that we can demonstrate, even these are thought to break down, such as at the centre of black holes or at the moment of the Big Bang. When it comes to the complex bodies of biology and society, it becomes much messier. You will always be able to find exceptions to any social or biological rule, in anything from human sexual differentiation to the fundamentals of language. We can at best identify strong tendencies or clusters of features, but never absolute universals or essences. This is why ethics cannot be a rigid set of rules that we apply in any circumstance. It must always be a guide, which sits alongside our embodied knowledge of the moment. The analysis of the complexity of the bodies involved in any situation must be at the centre of how we decide to act. Abstract, trans-historical schemas should at best contribute to shaping action over time without being a replacement for what James C. Scott calls metis, practical local knowledge. Where do we begin in setting out such an ethics? We touched in the previous episode on issues that might be considered ethical, to do with death, desire and power, but we were largely concerned with grounding our own feelings, our own internal struggles and anxieties. Here we become more interested in the other. How do we act given the existence of others like us? And once again, as in the three aspects of spirituality we established in episode two, this ethical discussion must make reference to the unseen of metaphysics and its relation to the body. 
The dual concern with metaphysics and embodiment helps us to respond to a likely objection, invoking the so-called is-ought fallacy. The is-ought fallacy states that one cannot decide what one ought to do simply from what is, what exists. On the surface, this agrees with what we have said about relativism and realism. There may be one shared reality, but this demonstrably leads to a plurality of worldviews, which are not false, but produce something different, or being parts of that reality. It is also important to distinguish is and ought to avoid naturalising social power structures. The reality of white people generally having more power than people of colour does not imply this is how things ought to be. But none of this actually prevents creating a link between metaphysics and ethics, albeit a non-linear one. I don't want to go into all of the problems with the is-ought objection. For example, it is a different question as to whether we can derive ethics from metaphysics or ethics from sociology, and the notion of is risks collapsing the two. The more significant point I want to make is that it wrongly assumes that philosophy occurs in an abstract, disembodied space. It is implied that one begins from scratch, logically constructs a metaphysical system, and then will inevitably fail to convert this into ethics. But the person who engages with philosophy, whether writer or reader, is not such a blank slate. They have a body that contains pre-existing ethical and metaphysical ideas, even if they are unconscious and inconsistent. And those ethical and metaphysical ideas, whilst not fully derived from one another, are nonetheless entwined. For example, the idea that it is worth caring for other people as ends in themselves supposes that they exist, that they are not, as in subjective idealism, a figment of our imagination. Conversely, to lose faith in reality can have knock-on effects in how we care for others, or ourselves. To do anything, we require at least folk beliefs as to what the world we are seeing really is, and some patchwork of ideas about appropriate action comes with all social bodies, else they do not stay together as bodies for long. To engage with philosophy, therefore, involves intervening in this existing system of ideas. It produces new effects in the body through the struggle between the ideas presented and those of the reader's prior cognitive makeup. In the case of this project, I have presumed a general left-wing audience, or curious liberal, which, as I have argued in episode 4, comes with its own metaphysical and ethical tendencies. My audience is already beginning with their own endogenous network of ises and oughts, and everything I say represents a challenge to either change or reinforce this network. We can therefore link ethical ideas to metaphysical ones in terms of how these produce changes in bodies, rather than how one is logically reducible to the other. It's not about deriving ethics from metaphysics as though a mathematical proof. It's about philosophy as intervention into living systems. One typical complaint from the left is that ethics focuses excessively on the individual at the expense of critiquing political structures. Whether or not this is an accurate criticism of the academic philosophical approach to ethics, one could easily counter that the opposite is equally problematic. A political analysis that skirts over individual thought and behaviour, collapsing everything into structural factors with no room for the relative autonomy of the subject. Such individual experience is, if anything, a more self-evident reality to most people than the notion of structural forces or population effects, 
and failing to engage with those aspects of experience is to hamstring your own attempts at persuasion and propaganda. It is in any case difficult to maintain a sharp boundary between ethics and politics, given the multiscalar systems ontology I've been setting out. Typically, ethics relates to our immediate relationships to ourselves and those we encounter, whereas politics takes in broader, more abstract questions of the organisation of society, the distribution of power and resources, etc. And yet the mutual interaction of scales, along with the fact that we can only ever, as individuals, act on some local scale, means in effect that every action has both ethical and political dimensions. Our actions reproduce wider structures, or our actions challenge structures, and our subjectivity arises through co-evolution with those structures. The collective action valued by the left is not just an aggregation of individual actions, because new powers emerge in organisation that are more than the sum of their parts, but it still requires individual actions, individual decisions to support a movement, to take part and to organise. That is not, however, to support the liberal interpretation of the phrase the personal is political. It is not enough to simply make personal choices and presume this is a significant political act. The original 1960s feminist use of the phrase was meant as a consciousness-raising intervention into the lives of housewives to show that their personal struggles were the result of shared political structures, not that their personal choices were sufficient political responses. If the political relates to a wider scale, then personal interventions only become significantly political when they are also coordinated at scale. If ethics is here synchronically multiscalar, it is also diachronically multiscalar, that is, not only in space, but in time. I've mentioned how ethics involves both the moment-to-moment and the longer life trajectory, but of course these cannot be disconnected from one another. Our momentary decisions are not random, but based on embodied knowledge from our past and desire for certain future outcomes. Conversely, our trajectories are not predetermined, but shaped by our momentary decisions. Yet despite this connection, we often fail to comprehend it as such. We have long-term goals, and yet make momentary decisions which contradict those goals. And likewise, we may have idealised future goals which do not account for how we actually enjoy living in the moment. The notions of compass and horizon we encountered in episode 4 might be a useful idea to expand upon. By compass, I mean internalised models of behaviour for ourselves, interlocutors and immediate environments that help to guide us momentarily. A compass can swing wildly as we move, and so we cannot be fully guided by it, although it can help us to connect the immediate with the distant. The horizon is the ultimate end goal that we envisage, albeit underspecified, gradually shifting as we uncover more territory, and never fully realised. It is only by regularly re-examining the relation between the two that we can create a stable and yet still responsive path towards a better future. That is, asking of the horizon, are we still aiming at the right end? What new landscapes are we starting to see appear? And asking of the compass, is this still guiding me towards that horizon? Between these abstract poles, however, there is the often missing but entirely necessary aspect of acting in the actual world, our steering through the landscape. We need then a sense of what it means to intervene and what our options are. Our navigation along the revolutionary path 
is therefore made up of compass, horizon and steering. If ethics is the question of how to act, we must be careful not to imply that this is concerned only with conscious decision-making. As we have already touched upon, cognition is largely unconscious, and the self emerges at the relation between conscious and unconscious processes. So far I have presented desire as arising from biological functions which preserve the life of an individual or species, such as the impulse to fight or flight, feed or fornicate. And yet so much of our day-to-day -day desire seems to have no direct link to survival. My appreciation of the beauty of a flower, my enjoyment in walking through a dark forest to take photographs, to drink cocktails which are tasty but unhealthy, to smoke, and so on. These are clearly not just reflections of survival instincts, particularly as some of them could even hasten our death. There is clearly therefore a degree of autonomy of the body from the evolutionary processes which shaped it. The ability to feel pleasure and displeasure may have been selected through evolution for how they successfully drew us towards the beneficial and away from the dangerous, but as soon as any function arises it opens up new, unexpected potentials, new connections, a new, adjacent possible, as the theoretical biologist Stuart Kaufman puts it. Abstract appreciation of beauty might be seen therefore as what we previously called an acceptation, something which emerged as an accidental phenomenon alongside a more advantageous trait, but which later can take on an important function of its own. Even if we were to reduce desire to survival, we would have to look beyond the level of the individual. Aside from the reflexes to fight, flee, feed and fuck, our survival instincts also involve sociability. We have not succeeded as a species because of superior strength or agility, but through our ability to cooperate. Our intelligence, both rational and emotional, enables interpersonal care and the construction of social rules. Some anthropologists such as Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy go as far as to place maternal care as central to the evolution of our species. But these desires for individual biological survival and social reproduction can often fall into conflict. Identifying with the social means taking on ideas which precede you, which have survived through sociogenetic time, not necessarily because of their benefit to any individual. Ideas, themselves being subject to a form of evolutionary process, will survive insofar as they support or do not hinder the survival of the social whole. If a certain cultural concept results in the death of an individual, as in witch hunts, but maintains the power of the wider group, it is, perhaps unfortunately, likely to be passed on. We are therefore put in a paradoxical relationship immediately upon becoming social. We need society for our individual survival, which means taking on ideas which may be antithetical to our individual survival. Social codes are a form of enabling constraint. We restrict the degrees of freedom of individuals, which enables the consistency from which larger bodies can emerge. The metaphor of another brick in the wall is quite appropriate. We restrict the movement of bricks to enable the construction of a wall, just as the restriction on human desires enables the construction of social bodies. But to imagine a society with absolutely unrestricted desire is a fantasy. This would disable any coherent social body from emerging at all. 
to have no consistency on when or with whom it is appropriate to fight or fornicate would create constant social breakdown. This does not in any way mean we can't question our current social rules. The questions are, what precisely is being restricted? How rigidly? What effects are being produced? Are these rules adaptable? Who is the authority? And what are the alternatives? Unlike the constraint on bricks, however, social rules and norms are not merely imposed from the outside, but we learn to self-impose. We don't require others to shout, assault or threaten us with being ostracised to direct our behaviour throughout our lives. We internalise such threats. These may in childhood be experienced as actively enforced, or in those moments when we do break with convention. But in general, we come to take on social rules as our own, automatically repressing or redirecting desires in order to avoid sanction. And that restriction is not always, or even often, felt as an imposition. Our desire for collective being means we can come to identify with the social body and see its reproduction as part of ours. We come to actively desire in-group identity and enjoy enacting the moral codes and practices of the group as confirmation of our membership, even if these are highly arbitrary and restrictive. A metaphorical identification of one's own body with the social body can also undergird a sense of an attack on one is an attack on all. This is clearly something operationalised in fascist subjectivity, with its hard borders between native and foreign populations, and its ideas of normal and degenerate behaviour. But it also can play a part in any worldview. The liberal apology for wars of intervention, or the communist glee in gulagging opponents, can both involve a certain notion of the social body and its need to be cleansed. It is not enough to imagine that wars throughout history have been waged entirely at the behest of tyrannical leaders. The populace may actually desire war through the identification with the social body and its sense of being attacked, as though a sort of socially distributed fight-or-flight response. We can find the body-politic metaphor stretching back not only into ancient Greek civilization, but also in Indian and Chinese thought. There is clearly something here of a broad social tendency that we need to find ways to ward off without collapsing the power and cohesiveness of the social body. In psychoanalytical accounts, this restriction of desire at the behest of an internalised other is taken to be the function of the superego. In contemporary neuroscientific thought, this is linked directly to certain structures of the brain. The notion of the triune brain sees the brain as consisting of three broad functions, autonomic, limbic and neocortical. The autonomic is concerned with the regulation of things like breathing, heartbeat, hormones, temperature and so on. The limbic system is the centre of felt emotion, fear, anxiety, longing, joy. And the neocortex, the most recently developed evolutionarily, is responsible for impulse control, forward planning and abstract reasoning. It is this impulse control that enables that silent voice in your head telling you not to act in certain ways that your body might otherwise be driven towards. This is not just some form of traumatic repression that has to be undone, but is the very thing that gives our lives coherence. Impulse control means the possibility of planning in the short and long term. The autonomic, limbic and neocortical systems are sometimes nicknamed colourfully but somewhat inaccurately, 
the reptilian, mammalian, and human brain. That is, each is supposed to have evolved at different stages, and so whilst we share a similar autonomic structure to reptiles, and a similar limbic structure to other mammals, our neocortex, in its size and complexity, sets humans apart from our nearest relatives. Contrary to the reactionary idea that our unconscious desires for violence and sex are somehow the real human, it is in fact our ability to control these impulses through our enlarged neocortex that distinguishes the human from other animals. Rather than a singular evolved mind, therefore, our reflexes, emotions and abstract reasoning might be seen as having distinct phylogenetic paths. Each of these systems impinges upon the other, so that an autonomic change, like an increased heart rate, is felt with a limbic response, anxiety, and then rationalised in the neocortex. I must be anxious about something. It can also flow in the other direction. Sat alone thinking to yourself, you are suddenly reminded of someone, and the memory of them makes you feel jealous, lonely and rejected, which triggers changes in heart rate and so on. These chain reactions are happening all the time, like when we touch a hot pan and experience reflexes, felt pain, self-reproach, or all the physical and mental reactions in watching a fictional horror film. But just as these systems can neatly align and enable clear action, they can also work against each other. Trauma survivors often have highly active alarm systems, particularly involving the amygdala in the centre of the brain, connected to the limbic and autonomic systems that trigger fight-or-flight responses. And yet at the same time, their neocortex may be trying to say, no, everything is fine, calm down. It would be wrong to think of this as irrational, however. The body is, if anything, reacting quite appropriately with regard to its past experience. The problem arises when one's environment changes, and the mind continues to repeat the prior embodied expectations of a lack of safety. We may be neuroplastic, with malleable brains, but we still get stuck in patterns and trajectories. Thinking of desire, therefore, as if it were merely a clear arrow pointing from the subject to an object would be a mistake. There are always multiple arrows, sometimes disrupting one another, bending each other out of shape. We are equally chaotic and consistent, emotional and rational, all at once our actions and experience emerging out of the conflict and cooperation of these mental systems. The multiple layers of desire also stretch out in time. We desire not only what is immediately before us, but also seconds ahead, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months or years ahead. And thanks to the capacity for impulse control, we can act now in such a way as to help bring those longer-term desires into reality. But when these are not so carefully planned, rationalised and controlled, they can easily contradict one another. The desire for chocolate cake right now would ruin the dinner you have planned for later. The cost of that restaurant meal might prevent you from buying those concert tickets for next month. Your habitual concert going may prevent you from saving money to move to a new city. Missing out on the city may mean missing the opportunities for work, play, creativity and meeting new people that it provides. We all have dreams, most of which, even the achievable ones, never become a reality because we don't direct our immediate desires to function as steps towards that ultimate desire. On the one hand, this at least initially requires deliberate thought, rationalisation, a certain ordering of desire. 
but as this is contrary to the tendencies of desire, such deliberation is highly effortful, and to do this at all times would produce an unbearable cognitive load. We have to fall back on habitual patterns of thought to be able to function. If we are interested in self-engineering, therefore, it becomes more sustainable if we can train ourselves to act spontaneously. This is not to say we crush or defer all our immediate desires. This too would become exhausting. Instead, we can try to shape ourselves over time so that we desire those experiences which set us off on the right trajectory. One might compare this to the Taoist notion of Wu Wei, or effortless action. If we are to establish an internal compass, therefore, it does need to involve a conscious, rational process of self-evaluation and intervention, but it must also aim to create habitual patterns of behaviour that set us on a path towards our chosen horizon. We often see examples of the failure of this process in political activism, where an expressed political position, say a man's feminist beliefs, is contradicted by their actions, his continuing sexist behaviour. This is often framed as knowing hypocrisy or outright deception, and on occasion perhaps it is, but in many cases it may also be sincere though no less problematic, the result of work having been done on abstract conscious reasoning and less done on unconscious embodiment. Any notion of virtue must involve both sides in relation, in the mode of embodied reason. But what virtues and visions should we be aiming towards? Resulting from its self-reproductive, co-adaptive and sensing functions, the human tends to desire the maintenance or expansion of its relative autonomy over its reduction. This is another facet of the conflict inherent in social being. We at once desire the rules and restrictions that make sociality and the narrative coherence of our lives possible, and yet also desire the blowing apart of restrictions, of boundless freedom. We can, however, come to realise that freedom arises not from the end of constraint per se, but through the particular design of constraint, through our participation in that design. Paradoxically, we expand our autonomy and our empowerment, not by freeing ourselves from our environments, but by intensifying our relationship with them. Because our environments are part of us, we must select and craft our environments to be empowering. We must actively design our spaces and our relationships to one another, and not merely fall into passive patterns learned through our histories. This level of participation in social design is, of course, something explicitly blocked under our current modes of social organisation. Workers subordinated to the designs of employers, or women subordinated to the designs of men, and so on. All of this messiness and conflict in the psyche, not to mention the contingency and unpredictability of reality in general, requires that we prepare for messiness and conflict in our social relations. To be forgiving of the other's mistakes, or our own, does not mean rescinding criticism or becoming dupes. It means seeing the other as multiple, conflicted, unfinished and unpredictable even to themselves. It means, following Emmanuel Levinas, that the other is fundamentally unknowable and infinite in potential. We may feel that we come to know another by their tendencies, their habits, moods, catchphrases, dialects, regularly expressed beliefs and interests, and yet we only ever see these external expressions 
and not the messy internal feeling, and nor do either of us see the potentials for this person to be otherwise. But this does not condemn us to individualism, to solipsism. Whilst we cannot know the precise experience of the other, we can recognise in them a capacity for joy and suffering. We can recognise also their capacity to recognise us. The intense reciprocal nature of this relationship sets it apart from relations to non-conscious beings. In face-to-face -face communication, the speed of feedbacks and adaptations to one another is remarkable. I respond to a minute change in your facial expression with my own feelings and my own change in expression, which you in turn notice immediately and which intensifies your own feelings and expression, ricocheting back and forth in the space of milliseconds. We can find potentials rapidly opened up by new people, their interrogation of us, their difference and unfamiliarity. Meeting a new person can create an overwhelming sense of them freeing you from yourself. Yet we must also take caution. If you attribute that feeling of empowerment too much to this other person and not to your own body, to the relation between the two of you, it can ultimately rob you of autonomy. One can become fixated on the other to the point of self-destruction, self-denial, the emptying of oneself to please the other. And when the overwhelming emotions later fade, your relationship having settled into steady patterns and habitual behaviours, you risk finding yourself trapped on a shared path with an other whom you once idolised, but who now, in the cold light of day, has nothing left to give you. This way in which an intense encounter with another can blow apart our prior sense of self is of course leading us towards the notion of love. Love has many senses. Love for a friend or family member, love for a partner, our love for ourselves, the things we love to do, each can be a very different experience. Rather than seeing love as a singular substance, I would take it as a cluster of features that emerge from what is more a continuum of feeling that we can divide up conceptually in different ways. The psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett thinks of emotion in this way, involving a flow of core affects which are broadly shared by all humans and categorizations which are learned, giving emotion both a socially relative and a universal element. On love specifically, the neuroscientist Helen Fisher has identified distinct neurochemical bases of attachment, lust and attraction. She argues that the secure attachment of love is related to oxytocin and vasopressin, lust comes from testosterone and oestrogen, and obsessive attraction from dopamine and norepinephrine. Different social expressions of love will involve different neurotransmitters, friendly relationships being all about oxytocin. But rather than being hard-bounded categories, where I either feel love or lust for you, our familiar emotions arise from different balances of these structures. Even within a single social role like partner or friend, two different people may experience very different balances. Thus the muted sexual desire that some may feel in spite of being hyper-romantic, or those that over time have lost the wild emotion of obsessive attraction or limerence and now simply feel comfortable. 
It is important, therefore, that if we talk about the revolutionary implications of love, we recognise that love is not simple and singular. Love is not always transformative, it is not always positive, and love is not always reciprocal. Love can be boring, trapping us in stasis. Love can change us in ways which rob us of autonomy. Love can be greedy and destructive. Love can drive us into a coupledom which hides us from the world. Love, perhaps more than anything else, produces great suffering. But all of these affects, if properly directed, can have their place in revolutionary consciousness. There are things we do need to destroy. There are things we do want to maintain in safety with minimal change. There are times when a coupling may drive us to a greater relation to the world, not less. The question is not whether love, but how to love. To this end, it is important also to distinguish love as an internal feeling, as desire, from love as an active social relation, as practical and external. Eliding this distinction leads to many difficulties. For example, one may insist, with sincerity, that they love the other, and yet are not able to embody this in their actions, in a way which expresses for and produces in the other a reception of that love. Likewise, one can go through the motions, making one's partner feel loved, whilst feeling little in the way of loving emotion yourself. Whilst as a feeling, love may be opposed to hatred or indifference, as an external relation, love is opposed to reification. That is, a loving relation is one that accounts for the complexity, history and potential of the other, and enters into a mutually transformative dialogue. This is opposed to a relation which totalizes the other, that puts them into a box where you believe you know them totally. This is a relation that cuts the other off from change, or else changes them in a way that reflects the desires of the other party, turning a complex human into a blank canvas that the other paints their desires onto. The loving relation rejects this simplification and control of the other, Sadly, so much of what passes for love is not love in this sense at all. We often go through the motions, whether romantic, friendly or familiar, fulfilling a fixed role as carer or cared for, as mother, boyfriend, care worker. This care involves a simplified image of the other with a simplistic, conventional relation. They need food, clean clothes, a kiss, flowers on Valentine's Day, etc. This may at times coincide with the genuine needs of a person, but it frequently does not. A child who feels emotionally trampled upon despite receiving the material support of their parent or parents. The carer who dehumanises their clients, if only in their minds, and goes about their tasks robotically. The woman who receives profusive love so long as she maintains her appearance in a way her partner desires, and keeps quiet about those beliefs and interests which bore or confuse him. A genuine relationship of care involves seeing the other as fundamentally unknown, as bewilderingly complex, as experiencing an inner emotional life both similar and yet totally alien to one's own. And it means an ongoing, active attempt to uncover the other's genuine needs through open and honest communication. It is a relationship of mutual feedback. It means co-adaptivity, never locking a person into a rigid frame and dismissing, ignoring or repressing differences that fall outside that frame.
Lovers who do not share interests is one thing, but lovers who cannot share their interests for fear of the other, or who refuse to try to understand their partner's interests, are not enacting a loving relation. Care is a relationship of solidarity, not charity. It is a dance, not a service. The philosopher and mystic Simone Weil has called this the practice of attention, to fully attend to the needs and complexity of the other, not as a means to our own ends, but as an end in themselves. And in this process, through a temporary suspension of the ego, we can experience a moment of sublime transcendence, what Vey saw as an experience of God. In such an experience, or in reflecting on this experience, we combine both the personal feeling of love and the act of love, or, in more religious language, the esoteric and exoteric dimensions of love. But who should we love, and why? A common, loosely spiritual position is that we should love everyone. But for many secular leftists, such a universal love is totally out of the question, given they have to deal not only with those who may be kind individuals blithely perpetuating harmful systems, but also with opponents who actively want to harm them, like fascists. However, having reconfigured the loving relation to mean the attempt to affirm the complexity of the other, rather than just being an arbitrary feeling, we can, albeit with care, imagine how we might usefully love our opponents. Particularly as we are not approaching others as singular, but as inherently multiple, conflictual, made up of different layers and timescales. As I have reiterated, what something is, its full reality, is not limited to the actual shape of things as they are presented to us. Potential is as real as the actual. Thus we can love something for how it could be, not how it currently appears. Love can be aimed towards transformation, not maintenance of the existing state of things. As well as futures, there are also histories to consider. We are not just ourselves at this moment, but the ontogenetic, sociogenetic, and phylogenetic paths that have created us. You might love someone on one of these scales, yet oppose them on another. I love my mother in terms of our whole life ontogenetic relationship, but this does not prevent my anger or frustration when I feel mistreated on a moment-to-moment -moment microgenetic scale. I might love another for our shared social background, context, or values, such as a comrade or a supporter of the same sports team, yet hate them as individuals. And I might love someone for simply being human, for our inescapable phylogenetic connection, and yet violently oppose every other aspect of their being. And I do so in the knowledge of at least their potential to change, even if this is never achieved. Far from blinkering us to the brutal realities of people, I feel this provides clarity. In bypassing simplistic hatred, whilst retaining the space for righteous anger. The wild autonomic reflexes and limbic states associated with anger are not squashed, but focused more precisely. But even if we take as our baseline a loving kindness for humanity, a desire to reduce its suffering, a belief that those who cause harm are doing so because of their past experiences, a faith in the potential for people to change, and so on, we must acknowledge the cold, hard truth that great numbers of people both cause 
and fail to oppose many terrible injustices and abuses. And such people in turn will often refuse to acknowledge the pain they have caused, will fail to reflect upon and change their behaviour. And regardless of individual virtue, we must also acknowledge that these are not just individual phenomena, but exist within wider patterns of reproduction. Not mere acts of racism, but racist systems. Not mere acts of sexism, but sexist systems. Not mere individual greed and incidental poverty, but capitalism. In understanding this, however, our anti-essentialist, emergentist position tells us it need not be this way. A body can be broken down, its functions destroyed. Our process position says people and systems can change. And the desire to love the world, to create a world which we are able to love without effort, can be a motivation for action itself. Indeed, if we didn't care in such a way beyond ourselves and our immediate relations, why would we act politically at all? Some may be signalling, looking for recognition from others, but perhaps this is what is powerful in God or other such personifications. We are asking for recognition from the universe itself. We can find a contrast to this praxis of love in fascist subjectivity. Whilst the fascist movement is a historically situated one, which only makes sense in light of the modern nation-state and capitalism, there are underlying cognitive tendencies which that fascism operationalises, which have a deeper history. Rather than seeing reification as an either-or state, we can understand it as an over-rigidification of cognitive dynamics that can occur at varying stages of thought. At the immediate reception of sense data, it is an overly rigid attention which does not search for the new, but remains within established patterns of attention. In perception, it is overly rigid categories of understanding that are never re-evaluated or pulled apart, treated as immutable, natural, ahistorical. In reason, it is the reliance on rehearsed patterns of response, appropriating new information purely to support a foregone conclusion, with no reflection on the process of thought itself, a sense of, this is just the way things are. None of this necessarily creates a fascist subject or society. Each can and does occur in all of us at one time or another. Fascism involves the intensification of these tendencies, their active reproduction and organisation. This is not merely to remain ignorant of the complexity of the other, but the active denial or destruction of such complexity. Humans are fully reduced to a singular simple image, the immigrant, the scrounger, the degenerate, and vilified. There are more nuances to fascist subjectivity, but this reification plays a key role. In Umberto Eco's list of 14 features of ur-fascism, including the cult of tradition, the denial of reason, action for action's sake, fear of difference, and the caricature of opponents as both strong and weak, much of this returns to thought which actively rejects complexity, reciprocity, fluidity, and adaptation. It is a cliché to say how horrible it must be to be so driven by hate, but whilst I'm sure there are some who come to fascism through terrible trauma, 
This cannot characterise all. Such cognitive dynamics should not be seen only as negations, because this may be felt for the fascist as a joyful experience. It can feel supremely empowering to violently reject the other. With intense identification with an imagined social body, its purification can be felt as one's own. And all of this can occur even in spite of fascism actually producing real disempowerment in its subjects, through the intensification of social restrictions, the annihilation of democracy and workers' power, and so on. It is important, therefore, and too rarely done, to distinguish suffering from oppression. When leftists talk of systemic oppression, this is not reducible to a distribution of suffering. Firstly, suffering can be individual and contingent, occurring as a result of chance events like a car accident or a bar fight over a spilled drink. Oppression, however, is always systemic and regularised. It forms patterns, and it creates or makes use of categories of people. Secondly, oppression can and often does involve suffering, but it doesn't always. I understand oppression as, more specifically, the systemic production of disempowerment, and whether that disempowerment is actually experienced as suffering is not guaranteed. A black conservative may deny the reality of systemic racism based on their own experience, but this does not alter the system itself in its disadvantage of people of colour, which is empirically well supported in sociology and psychology. If one's opportunities were reduced because of one's colour, then one has been oppressed, even if you have no awareness of those opportunities denied to you. And as oppression is not necessarily experienced consciously, we can therefore even be shaped in some way to desire our own oppression. That is, to desire the system which we do not realise is the source of our suffering or disempowerment. We need therefore to understand the importance of both the qualitative psychological aspect of suffering and the rational organisational aspect of oppression as distinct but related and avoid collapsing them together. This does open the thorny issue of how consciousness raising about one's own oppression may be liable to produce suffering. This can involve not only a painful shattering of prior worldviews, but a reorientation towards what you never realised you lost, how you never realised you were being attacked. This might be seen as one reason for why some actively resist knowledge of the systems which disempower them. It is simply too painful. It is important, therefore, that such a process takes place within a context that is both caring and empowering in its own right, to catch people as they fall, to provide a buffer between the subject and the terror of a collapsed worldview. Here we have focused on direct interpersonal relations, as in a conversation or a friendship, but if we do centre this ethics around the consciousness of another body who is directly in front of us, then we do risk eliding the collective and political. We will never directly encounter the vast majority of people whom our political visions would impact, and this distance and disconnect changes how we approach ethical questions. We must understand our ecological entanglement with consciousnesses that we have no direct involvement with, and that our actions can and do have rippling, cascading effects that extend far beyond our ability to perceive them. If the face of the other is a lure to ethical behaviour, then it is precisely this absent other's lack of a face which remains a problem. 
We can see this in practical terms in the individual who votes for an anti-immigration party, yet defends his migrant neighbour who he knows by name and whose kids go to the same school as his. The complexity and sympathy of the real human with whom you share a tight ecological relation is far more apparent than when they are simply represented by an abstract identity marker. Part of consciousness raising must therefore be to fill the idea of the abstract other with richer content, with empathy for the absent, and part of the reorganisation of society should be to find ways of enabling new long-term face-to-face relations of mutual dependence. Producing empowerment in individuals, or easing their suffering, may be ethically laudable, but it is not necessarily systemic action. Yet, nor can it be sidestepped. As social bodies enter into trajectories, relatively stable paths of development, then creating a world of ethical relations, or making loving relations dominant, requires their inaction now. The alternative, that we deal with that after the revolution, would prevent that end from ever being reached. It may not be as simple as prefiguring the new world in the shell of the old, but that is still one important aspect. As I argued in my book, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, we must also smash, tame and heal systems, as well as building them. We must not only begin enacting the world we want to see, we also need to find ways of living which support us to carry on through difficult circumstances, which attract new people to our movement, and which blow apart our prior modes of consciousness. The easing of direct suffering is important then, so long as we are able to connect it to the longer material struggle, rather than simply assuming that such individual action will take us on a path to a better world. I already argued in episode 4 that capitalism is productive of suffering, and we can now connect this more directly to our outline of subjectivity. Capitalism disrupts life processes of self-reproduction, co-adaptation and sensing. In doing so, it exacerbates the existential problems of death, disorientation, desire and disempowerment. Our self-reproduction is connected into markets and forces we do not control. In having to shape ourselves as marketable goods, we cannot freely co-adapt in a reciprocal fashion with our environments and our sensing apparatus is shaped by and subordinated to capital accumulation and the reproduction of the capitalist worldview. The fetishization of work, the desire for consumer goods, the veneration of the individual, and so on. What then is the alternative? It is, in the most abstract terms, a system that supports autonomous human self-reproduction, that allows a co-adaptation between subjects and with their environments, and where knowledge systems emphasise complexity and fluidity, not rigidity of self and thought. It is not as simple as saying, we need socialism. We do need socialism, and the system I envisage is necessarily socialist, but a system may qualify as economically socialist without fulfilling these requirements. Socialism is necessary, but not sufficient. We are not, however, starting from scratch. We can find elements of such mutual reproduction, liberatory sense-making, and co-adaptive relationships everywhere from urban social movements, to loving relationships, to indigenous social ecological systems. They are, however, disjoined from one another, and swallowed up by the scale and power of the capitalist world system. So we seek to change the capitalist system as a whole, 
which at this point in history has grown to cover most of the globe. That whole which emerges out of its dominant forces plays down upon all the parts, shaping us as individuals and all the intermediate scales of social body, such as cities, schools, firms, and so on. This is not absolutely determining, we can learn to oppose it, but it is a strong shaping force which guides our development. Someone born into an already capitalist world, but outside of critical discourses, as you might find in a family of trade unionists, is likely to take the contours of capitalism for granted, as natural. They are likely, therefore, to act in ways which at least passively reproduce that world, if not actively when it appears threatened. We take on, for example, capitalist understandings of the naturalness of competition, of accumulation, and of enormous inequality. There is then a reciprocal relation, the human shaped by the whole system, who then acts to reproduce that whole system. Given this multi-scalar reciprocal relationship, where all scales contribute to the reproduction of capitalism, revolutionary change therefore requires change in all scales. It requires consciousness change in individuals, the creation of new organisations, and the transformation of old ones. It requires redesigns in our cities, our working relations, in the family and schooling. It requires an alternative to the dominance of markets and the liberal, pseudo-democratic state in the global economy and the interstate system. It is of course wrong to reduce social change to personal development and interpersonal ethics, as liberals tend to do. But equally, ignoring these localised scales misses important sites of struggle. Multiscalar systemic change is not something that usually figures into philosophical ethics. Ethics is usually divided between approaches such as virtue ethics, deontology or rule ethics, and consequentialism, with these presented as incommensurable. Taking a multiscalar systems view, however, these could instead be seen as pointing to various partial errors of the social whole. Virtue ethics would relate to our cognitive models of proper behaviour. Deontology would relate to the rules and conventions of social systems and our relation to those rules. Consequentialism, or teleological ethics, focuses on bringing about particular results. What one might call, following previous episodes, a teleodynamic ethics, would need to bring all of these into play. That is, an end-directed ethics where that direction emerges from the interplay of internal dynamics, virtues, and external relations, rules. A sought-after end, whether the prevention of climate catastrophe or the establishment of communism, cannot be said to be more or less important than the development of ethical rules and conventions, or our personal embodied models of behaviour, because the nature of multiscalar systemic change involves all of these in their interaction. Communal or organisational rules and conventions, what leftists traditionally call discipline, can help to reproduce virtuous individuals. Virtuous individuals, those who are socialist, feminist, anti-racist, do the organising necessary to pursue long-term political goals. And the articulation of such strategic end goals provides a focus for the development of rules and of virtuous behaviours. So virtues, rules and ends are co-constitutive, they reinforce one another. Because of this dynamic, co-constitutive nature of ethical focal points, there is no way for us to determine for all time the exact content of what is ethical. 
Ethics is the process of beginning from a real situation, considering what ends, rules and virtues are in play, and how these interact. If our desired end is a world of autonomous human self-reproduction, co-adaptivity and cognition of complexity, we must begin with an understanding of where this currently fails, in the social whole, in organisations, and in ourselves and personal relations. This will differ across time and place and person, and will change as we continue to act into the world. Ethics, therefore, can never be completed. It is a process, a praxis, of constant questioning and acting, of experimentation and change. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash onalifeglug. You can find me on Twitter also at onalifeglug. And if you're interested in my previous work, check out my book, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, which is available from Polity Books. <laughs>